Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author, media and PR coach, copywriter, editor and proofreader, and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Lee Coates, founder of financial planning firm Ethical Investors in the UK and superannuation fund, which is a pension fund, Cruelty Free Super in Australia. Lee's run Ethical Investors since 1989 and established the first vegan investment funds in the UK three years later in 1992, pioneering the concept that animal welfare issues were as important as human rights and the environment. Following on from the success of the funds in the UK, he launched vegan pension fund Cruelty Free Super in Australia in 2010. The fund has high ethical standards in regards to people, animals and planet when it comes to what it will and won't invest in. Popular particularly with young women, the fund was initially dismissed by financial professionals in Australia who didn't believe that a superannuation fund focusing on animal welfare issues and only using social media to market itself would raise $1,000, let alone the $28 million it's brought in so far and so quickly. An ethical financial planner of 28 years and one of the top 150 qualified financial planners out of 30,000 in the UK, Lee was awarded an OBE, that's an Order of the British Empire, in 2011 for his services to ethical business and finance. The self-described Mr. Establishment enjoys drumming to relax, a throwback to his earlier years of playing drums in various bands, and blogs at cruelty-free money on global ethical finance issues. In this interview, Lee discusses the blind spot many vegan business owners have when it comes to investing the profits from their operations, the biggest mistakes vegan business owners make when seeking investment capital and what to do instead, the importance of having a diverse investment portfolio, how vegan investment funds' performance compares with non-vegan ones, why cruelty-free supers' fees are higher than non-vegan funds, how being Mr. Establishment has allowed him to influence the financial industry, what to take into account if you're considering opening a business in another country, and much more. Here's the interview with Lee Coates from Ethical Investors and Cruelty Free Super. Hello, Lee. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So uh, the question I ask everybody at the beginning of each podcast is why they do what they do. I always love hearing the different stories and reasons as to why people run ethical vegan businesses. So tell us what your why is. Um, really, all I'm doing is trying to combine um, two simple things, which is um, I run a business that I'm experienced um, and qualified to do. But I add to that my personal values and I make sure that um, I don't have to compromise the values in order to run the business. Perfect. Perfect. And I love the way because often when we think of vegan businesses, people think of food or maybe fashion or kind of product based businesses. But what I love is that you can be a vegan professional and run your business on ethical vegan principles. And you as a financial planner and uh, finance and investment expert do that, which is absolutely fantastic. Now, one of the things I find is that a lot of vegan business owners, particularly if they're in the startup phase or the early stages of their business, they're putting all the profits from their business back into the business to help it grow, which is great. But they're not really thinking about investing and, you know, investing money in order to make money. So I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about why it's important for vegan business owners to invest their money ethically and what benefits it can bring them? Um, sure. Yeah. Well, basically, it goes back to what I said before, which is about linking values in the business. I, I really cannot see the point of having a vegan business that stands out as a vegan business. Obviously, if you have a if you're a secret vegan business owner, fine. 
But if your business is predicated on you being vegan and it being vegan, then the money that's raised and generated by that business should follow vegan principles. And um, there's a bit of a litmus test I would throw out to vegan business owners, and that's um, if you were to explain to your customers what happened to the money that they'd spent in your business, um, could you rely on the fact that they would remain customers? So if you have superannuation or pensions, depending on where you're geographically based, um, if you're making money from your customers and then putting that into um, an investment fund that is investing in slaughtering and live exports and intensive farming, and you explain that to your customers, I bet you wouldn't have many customers left. Mm. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And I guess as well is there's this idea of uh, putting the money back in the business, but then not actually investing it in it anywhere. Um, so I'm curious about what your thoughts are about just the importance of investing money in some way for vegan business owners, which they're maybe not thinking about the long term. They're just kind of trying to get their businesses off the ground. So I'm curious, at what stage can a vegan business or should a vegan business be at least investing a small amount of money into some kind of ethical investment, whether it's a pension fund or a super fund or some some other kind of or stocks or shares, what have you? Um, Well, if it's... um if they're UK or Australian-based businesses, then effectively, the month after you start in business, you have to consider making the first pension superannuation contribution. So, day one. Now, in a broader investment sense, I would say the biggest investment any business owner, vegan or not, can make is actually reinvesting the money they make back in the business to to help it survive, you know, to get over that three, five-year um, period when so many businesses fail. So there's superannuation from day one is a legal requirement. So get your vegan money sorted at that point. But from the business generating surplus profits point of view, um, then choosing the right savings account uh, and where the business banks um, right through to just any form of stock market investment can be vegan. Got it, got it. Okay. Now, in terms of finances, because I know this is something you know a fair bit about, what are some of the mistakes, would you say, that business owners make when it comes to finances? Um, I think probably some of the biggest mistakes are not understanding um, the the simple aspects of of raising capital. So um, we've been approached so many times here in the UK or uh, in Australia from potential startup vegan businesses um, who just say, oh, I hear that uh, you know, you've got a vegan background. Um, I need some money for my business. <laughs> and the, the, first, the first question is, in what, fo- in what form? And then there's silence. So, well, how do you want the money? Uh, well, can you not just hand it over? <laughs> um, well, uh, well, there's two ways. I can lend it to you, in which case, you know, you need to issue some um, loan stock and we need a legal agreement or um, we can invest in your business so you need to sell me some of the equity if you're a one-man band sole trader you don't have any equity I mean you could sell me your arm and leg we're getting to a bit of um, Merchant of Venice <laughs> there. <laughs> but um, you know unless you are a corporate entity there's nothing you have to sell me that I can buy to give you e- capital so that, that's probably finance it's I think a lot of people think of it as a magic thing that they sort of say, I'm a good person, I'm trying to do good things, and money will just come through the letterbox. I know I'm not being condescending, but um, you know, thinking through how that money is going to get there. A lot of people spend a huge amount of time researching who they might contact, but they don't actually do any research about how, if they get a yes, that money's going to come in. That's a really good point, and it's funny because I often get approached as well saying, oh, I need help with, I've got this great new product, and I basically need investment, and I need connections, you know, people to invest in. And it's like you've said, they're not thinking any of it through. And when I'm sort of saying, okay, well, can you tell me a bit more? And then it ends up, well, yeah, I don't actually have any money at the moment myself. And like you said, it's this kind of expectation that someone will, yeah, just magically give it out. So so in terms of what what are the kinds of things that, cause that, that you should have in place? 
place then if they are going to, because I know you've touched on this, like saying that they need to think about, you know, how they will get the money and or what they will do with it. So what would they need in place to sort of come to you if uh, to get some kind of help around that in order for you to say yes? What do you look for? Um, well, a, a good business plan um, would be a starting point. You know, what, what is this, describe to me the business um, that you're looking to start, and why why are you looking to start it? What what's what's the driver behind it? And being vegan isn't a reason to be in business. There's lots of people that are vegan that just do jobs. That's not a prerequisite for starting a business. Mm-hmm. So that has to be put to one side. Um, that that being vegan tells me who you are. I want to know what your business is. Um, then I want to know whether it's going to survive. I, is it is it innovative or is it a me too? In other words, you've seen 15 other people that you know do this thing and you want to be number 16. Well, if there's space in the market for a 16th, I can't think of one, but uh, you know, an idea. But if there's a 16th business and there's room for it, that's fine. But if the first 10 are making money and the last 15 find that the market in that particular area is saturated, being number 16, being nice... Um, isn't going to make you money and that puts any money that you're asking for at risk um, and the follow up question to that would be if you're asking me to put my money at risk whether it's personally or in the corporate sense um, what are you putting at risk yeah yeah so so what you said a minute ago about you know turning to people asking having maybe good ideas lots of passion um, but not having any money so what you're saying is if if it fails You've got nothing to lose. Exactly. But you want me to lose. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which you know, so that there are venture capitalists out there, and that's part. Of, it's a numbers game. You support ten businesses. Um, eight of them will completely fail. One of them you might get your money back, and the one that works um, will make you a large amount of money that you then plough back into ten more businesses. Eight of which will fail. One of which will break even, and one of which will make you lots of money. Um, that those people are not wandering around the streets desperately looking for people to stop and say, thinking of starting a business, I've got some money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so they're, they're hard to find and they're few on the ground, whether they're vegan or not. I mean, there's just a yeah. very, very small number of people that, that sort of live their lives on the basis of venture capital. Therefore, that aside, um, it's back to basics, which is um, what, what is the business? Why is the business? And what makes it different? If it isn't different, um, then uh, can the market sustain another one of those businesses? Yeah. Um, that, that, that's a sensible business plan. Adding in the vegan thing is a bit, uh, that's the sweetener. That's not the starting point. The sweetener in, in terms of opening someone's wallet might be that, and I'm running it on vegan principles. Got it, got it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm glad you've said that because it's it is useful, I think, for people to hear that, that, yeah, the money isn't going to come magically out of there. And like you've said, there's very few people that would just take a chance on someone who's not actually risking anything themselves. So I'm glad that you said that. Now, talking of risk, I mean, investing of any kind, as, as you've sort of touched on, it is risky, whether you're putting money in stocks and shares, whether you're putting it in property. Um, so what are some of the ways an ethical business owner can mitigate the risk of their ethical investment? Uh, same as anyone else, really, which is diversification. I mean, the biggest investment a business owner has is their business. So first and foremost, keeping that business going and growing that business is the most important investment. Um, superannuation, pensions, that's a legal requirement to invest that money. Um, so that's a day one scenario. Um, but yeah, diversification. You need short term money needs to be in cash where it's not subject to market volatility. Um, and stocks and shares is for longer term money. The money goes up, the money goes down, but longer term. Um, one would hope that taking the risk of being in the stock market um, would generate a higher return than the, the safety of cash. Mm. Um, but even saying that, actually, that's not, it gives a wrong impression because um, in many instances, there is no safety in cash. It's, it's a perceived safety, which is it doesn't go up, it doesn't go down, I just earn my interest. Um, but there's still risk associated with that, which is that if you're earning 2% interest, a year and inflation's running at three percent, you've lost one percent. Mm. Because a year down the line, 
um, everything you want to buy has gone up by 3%, but your money's gone up by 2 so you are worse off a year later, so you've lost money. Now, not in the same way as the stock market, where it's much more visible and painful. You had a you had $10,000 invested, and suddenly it's worth eight in five minutes. Um, that's, that's that's what people see as sort of investment <laughs> risk. I mean, you could, could have 10, and it could jump to 15, and people go, what's investment risk? Um, you know, that, that's the difference between a good day in the market and a bad day in the market. But long-term, cash isn't... Uh, it, it's, it, it feels safer, but it doesn't mean to say that it, it is safer. Um, yeah. But anyway, diversification. diversification so, yeah. yeah, three main investment areas, cash, property and um, stocks and shares. Yeah. You can subdivide that into a myriad of different things, but those are the three areas. Um, for most people, the middle bit, property, is going to be their home. Right. You, know, you, need a, you need a lot more money to have a second, third home um, or you borrow. Um, but then you get into different risk, which is you know you borrowing a large amount of money to buy an asset that might fall in value. Um, doesn't mean you can go back to lender and say, well, that didn't work, so um, we'll yeah. call it quits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in terms of eth- uh, investing ethically, so I know you've you've raised the issue of like you say there are legal requirements certainly in some countries to pay either superannuation or some kind of pension and there may be different terminology depending on where where you are in the world and often business owners don't realize that you know paying into say a standard pension or superannuation fund or i think there's 401k i think it's called in the u.s that that money yeah is um is could well be going uh, to into industries that are really unethical whether it's animal testing or you know meat dairy agribusinesses and so um, but often I think people may perceive uh, an ethical investment as somehow a bit more risky. Like they're not at the end of the day, they want to get a return on their investment. They want to be ethical, but they also want to get a return on their investment. And sometimes there's maybe this myth or a perceived uh, risk that somehow ethical investment doesn't perform as well as regular um, investment. So what what would you say to that, Lee? Oh, okay. Um, you're getting in in my view, into the realms of deep, deep psychology here um, and uh, compartmentalization. And what I mean by that is that um, the average vegan going into a supermarket isn't walking down the, um, the aisle with the vegan products in going, oof, those um, vegan sausages look a bit expensive. It's a bit of a risk spending more of my money on those. I think I'll eat meat this week. <laughs> and, but... On the other hand, they could look at their, they will sit there quite calmly and look at ethical investment and go, hmm, but if it doesn't make me as much, there's the risk, um, you know, there's the cost element. Um, I think I'll invest unethically in meat, um, because I can't afford to, not um, to, yeah, not to, but they'll then go out to the supermarket and then, um, you know, put the blinkers on and refuse to even look down the aisle with the pieces of dead animal in. Then go down the aisle with the vegan products in and go, I know I'm paying a premium, but I'm a vegan and, you know, that's what I, I don't like it, but that's what I will do to ensure that I, I meet my, my personal values. Ten minutes before when they're sitting at home, they, their personal values went out the window. Now, the reality is there is no difference in the returns between sort of ethical funds main, and, and mainstream funds. On, the average ethical fund will do the same as the average non-ethical fund. The perception is, that being good um, will will come at a premium because in almost every other aspect of your life, buying fair trade, buying vegan products, you're used to paying a premium. So the perceived premium in financial products is either there are special vegan products that cost a lot more or the cost is I will make less and that's just wrong. Yeah. But as I say, psychologically, yeah, it's, it's interesting that people will, will, will see how they buy things themselves that they use and, and rigidly stick to their um, you know, vegan lifestyle and all of a sudden that vegan lifestyle becomes irrelevant when it comes to their money and uh, yeah. no, more than a little point. frustrating I think yeah, that is. It's a very good point actually and I like that you touched on that so I just want to reiterate that, that so the performance then of ethical funds is no, is basically on a par with regular ones. That's the reality. Yeah. 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 The biggest danger anybody faces when investing money is not whether they invest ethically or, or non-ethically, stroke mainstream. Um, it's actually having a bad manager managing their money. Mm, okay. Simple. 
There is no such thing as an ethical investment fund that makes its own rational decisions. It would have to be a living being. An ethical fund is just a, a, a technical structure that says, give us your money and we'll, it, we'll try and invest it for you. And we won't invest it in these areas. And the we is a, is a financial institution and the individual is a fund manager. So a bad fund manager running an ethical fund probably will do worse than a bad fund manager on a mainstream fund. The reason for that is that if you're running a mainstream fund, you just buy the same shares as everybody else. And you can go on the Internet now and you can get the lists of shares held by almost any fund. And if you're not a particularly skilled fund manager, you can just copy what everybody else does. You'll always be buying after they bought. So, um, you know, you probably won't make as much money, but people won't notice that you're doing a bad job. But in the ethical sector, it's much if you're not very good, you will do really badly being ethical. But if you're a good manager, it'll make no difference because it's it's the person. So as I say, think this perception of ethical funds almost gives them life. They're living things that do bad, that are mm. trying to do good but produce bad returns. No, they're just run by people who will do a bad job or a good job. And finding the ones that do a good job is the key. But that's the same for mainstream. Yeah, yeah, got it. So on that then, what should people look for when they're choosing an ethical investment company or you know an ethical financial planner? Um, track record is, is one thing, but, um, probably the starting point would be, um, looking at the definition of what's ethical. It has to be the driver because ethics are entirely subjective. Um, so just because something's got an ethical label doesn't mean at all that it meets your value and definition of ethical. That's right. I could put, yeah. I could put some of our financial, UK financial planning clients in a room <clears throat> and there would be a major bun fight over, um, you know, what's ethical and you, and genuinely passionate beliefs, um, that there would be conflict. So you could have, I've, I've had this before, a client who, um, for a, a client for a while, who, um, was a medical researcher. Now they could not understand my views or the views of other clients who were anti-vivisection, um, because their view was that, you know, there was this sort of strata of, of species and importance. Human beings are put at the top and their job was to make the lives and health of people better. And although it wasn't a deliberate, enjoyable process, if animals needed to be used in that process, but the passion that person had for their job and their beliefs were as strong as mine and other clients who um, felt that what they were trying to achieve was right, but the way they were trying to achieve it was utterly wrong. So both consider them, both sides consider themselves ethical. So when you're choosing an ethical fund, pick up the piece of paper or you know, the website or whatever and go through exactly and say, the views of this fund, are they aligned with my own personal views? Because if they're not, just move on to another one. It doesn't make that, that other fund ethical fund bad. It just means it's not in line with your values. Got it, got it. Now, Lee, you've run Ethical Investors in the UK since 1989, I believe, and Ethical Money, which under which Cruelty Free Super comes under, since 2009 in Australia. So what have been some of your key challenges operating, I guess, as perhaps somewhat of an outlier in the financial investing industry? Um, yeah, <laughs> it's... Firstly, from the financial planning point of view, since since '89, it's trying to convince, um, or, or I suppose tangentially, say I, I was started a business on a loser because firstly I had to convince customers that they should invest ethically. Then I had to convince financial institutions that having an ethical product for the people that wanted to invest ethically um, was a good idea. And uh, back in '89, a lot of people still the case to some extent, but had never heard of ethical investment or never made that connection that their money did bad things. Um, and the financial products available, there were quite a few in the UK, um, but none of them um, tackled animal welfare issues. So it took me two years, two and a half years of hard slog and negotiations with a couple of UK ethical funds to get them to go vegan. And Back in early 90s, that really wasn't so that it could cater to the vegan market. It, from my point of view, there wasn't any point in having a one fund that said no animal testing, but we can do a little bit of um, 
slaughtering and intensive farming. And then one fund that said um, no animal testing and no factory farming, but slaughtering and, and dairy is OK. It just made more sense to say to cover every aspect of animal welfare. Vegans a good starting point. Um, so every, so after having spent quite a bit of time trying to get that to happen, uh, three funds went vegan in the same year. Wow. That's, wow. That was great. In Australia, um, with launching Cruelty Free Super, uh, it was, again, it was more on the ethical side that, that there were quite a lot of ethical funds in Australia, uh, 2009-10. Uh, they were successful. People were aware of them. But um, everywhere I went, um, I was told Aussies are really not going to want to be um, adding animal welfare issues in as an, as an ethical option. And in fact, when I was looking to start Cruelty Free Super, um, it wasn't my intention to start Cruelty Free Super. <laughs> it was actually my intention <laughs> to try and get a, a financial institution with an ethical fund um, to, to change their criteria, very much in the way I did in the UK. I didn't look to start a fund. I had a financial planning business. I just wanted the funds that my clients wanted. Um, and in Australia, and all I got was, no, 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 there's going to be no interest in Australia. It's never going to happen. It's just people don't care about those sort of issues. And um, perhaps sometimes it felt that that would have been the point just to say, fine, and walk away. Um, but sweat, blood, tears, lots of tears, lots of ranting and shouty. <laughs> Later, I thought, I'm not going to give in. The, the demand is there, um, and I'll make it happen. Um, and so slowly but surely, uh, that market has grown, and um, you know, assets and membership numbers were up 60% in the last 12 months. So I think five, six years down the line, um, now we're moving into the seventh year, um, it's suddenly striking a chord. But probably now, it, what's interesting now is that um, the the financial services industry just probably looks at cruelty-free super things. Okay, fine, they, they've, they're going. There obviously are people out there, but um, let them go to cruelty-free. We're not interested in them. The the hardest job now is convincing Aussie vegans to make that decision that um, their money is linked to their values. Got it. And, I, and yeah. if, I'm, if I'm attending festivals, um, you know, World Vegan Day or something like that, probably for every three people that come up and go, wow, I've never thought of that before. That's brilliant. I'm going to join. For every three of those, I'll get one person coming up and telling me why they are not going to join. Mm. And one of them, one of them, believe it or not, some years ago now, because um, it's called Cruelty Free Super, so it's a broad you know, general term, that was really to reflect lifestyle, that name. One um, person came up to the, to the stall at World Vegan Day and said, until you call it vegan super, I'm not going to join. Where are you now? Oh, I'm in a mainstream super. So you're going to continue <laughs> oh, wow. in something abusing and exploiting animals, and you're going to stay there until I change the name of my fund to vegan super, because you will only join a vegan fund. Oh, wow. Wow. That was queer as they say in <laughs> in the UK. So so now my, my challenge is actually getting people just to do that stop, to go back to what I said before about the um you know making that positive decision when they're in the supermarket or going to shop in a vegan only shop, knowing that perhaps they'll pay a premium for that, getting those people to apply the same mindset um to their money and just say every month my employer is paying nine and a half percent of my salary um, into an investment fund, that investment fund is almost certainly going to be um, supporting live exports, slaughter, dairy, animal testing, mm. child labour, environmental destruction, palm oil, all that sort of thing. And am I happy with that? And if you are happy with that, um, why did you just go shopping in a vegan shop? Because yeah. you'll save a lot more by going yeah. to a main supermarket and having factory farm meat. Yeah, for sure. How are you perceived in the financial sector, Lee? Because, you know, you are a, a vegan, and an ethical vegan. How are you sort of perceived in, in that industry? And has that changed over the years? Um, yes, uh, it has changed. And was put it slightly for the better, although I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. It wasn't necessarily anything I did. It was uh, perception. Um, but... Uh, Yes, I'm, I'm deemed to be an outsider 
definitely. Um, the, the problem with other people viewing me as an outsider is I'm probably more of an insider than the insiders think I'm an outsider. Sounds rather convoluted. <laughs> what I mean by that is that, you know, my professional qualifications um, place me in the very top 1% of people in the financial services industry. Or let's be generous, say top 10%. In other words, 90% of the people that, that think I'm an outsider are, have less experience, qualifications and awards than I have in the same industry. So one thing that sort of tempers that, that if people meet me for the first time, there's a lot of perception, which is, oh yes, I'm, um, you know, an, an activist that has sort of got into the financial services industry. And, and the reality is I'm a financial services industry person through and through who is an activist and is trying to bring those two together for everybody's benefit. So nice. good financial returns, looking after the planet and not abusing things. Um, where the accidental um, improvement came along is when I was um, given my uh, OBE. Now, that had more of an impact in the UK than than Australia or, or the US. Um, and so many financial institutions that I was trying to get into and, and talk to and say, well, you know, why don't you launch an ethical fund? Why don't you have a responsible investment strategy? They would say, yeah, yeah it's, it's on the agenda possibly, but uh, come back and see us in a year or so. All of a sudden, I got emails saying, congratulations on your OBE. Please, please come and see us now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that, that was, it was lovely to have it and lovely to be recognized for work in, it was for services to ethical business and finance. I mean, it was lovely to be recognized, but it was in a way quite silly that I could have sent an email off to someone saying, can we meet and got the response? No, 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 um, not yet. We're not really ready for it. And then get the OB and it's like, oh, please come to lunch. And um, you have special dietary requirements. <laughs> I do actually. Yes. I love that. But what I think's really good from that is, is demonstrating that, um, you know, yeah, you can be kind of, you know, an outlier or have those very different values. But if you're really, really good and work really, really hard and be really, really good at what you do, like you say, it does kind of disarm people in, in a lot of ways. It, it takes away their, um, uh, you know, their ability to critique you because you really, really know your stuff and you look the part and, and everything. Like you're, you don't necessarily look like, quote, a stereo or what people think a stereotypical activist looks like. So I think that's actually a good message to share that, you know, yeah, you have to work hard. But if you do put in that effort, you know, to do really good work and get all the relevant qualifications, depending on what industry you're in, then that can really kind of disarm a lot of uh, critics. So I, I love that you've, you've done that. That's fantastic. Yes, now, I, I am. I am known to wear a, a, a you know rather nice suit occasionally when when situation yes, demands. Absolutely. So, <laughs> walking into the boardroom of a, a large financial services company um, in my um, "Meet Is Murder" T-shirt completely fits their stereotypical image of what I was going to be. Um, yeah. And suddenly walk in in a suit and go, oh, that looks like my suit. Oh, he's, yeah. he's, almost, he's almost normal. Almost normal, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a disarming moment. And in that moment, you can slip in the message. And, exactly. and it's, you can see, there's, I'm being silly in it in a way, but, you know, there's almost that window of opportunity, modern silly phrasing. But you have that window. And that window is to say, whilst they're trying to work out why um, their perception of what they thought you would be isn't right, You've got to subliminally get your message across and say, I'm normal, I'm like you, but I think this way and it works and you can make money out of it. There's the other hook yes, um, yes. by being able to deliver this type of product to this type of community. Um, and lots of people in that community also wear suits and have money and want to give it to you, but only if you give them the right product. You can get that in really quickly. <laughs> but if you walk in instantly ticking every box of um, their preconceived idea of you, They're then shut the bottom down, of the they? box is, were we right in all of the above, which is waste of time, not, not, um, doesn't understand the way we, we work. Cause you've got to look at the other way, which is, um, you're trying to get them to understand your message, but in a way walking in with a meeting, meet is murder t-shirt is, is you saying, but I'm not going to listen to you and I'm not going to yeah. understand your side of things. Exactly. Yeah. So coming in and saying, I've started by being on your side. I just want you to just change a little bit of your side. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Now that's so a really get, good point. You get a lot further. You get a lot further that way. 
Absolutely. Now, that's really good advice, actually. And, you know, you get to wear your Meet His Murder t-shirt at a, at a rally or something. So it's all good. It doesn't mean you can't wear it. It's just, yeah, being strategic. Uh, well, it can be way. under the shirt and tie, you see. Yeah, exactly. It's like in a Superman or a pair sense, of socks just, or something. Yeah, you just rip off the shirt and suddenly Meet His Murder comes out. Yeah. When, when they've all agreed, when they've all agreed, yes, Lee, that's a really, really good idea. I think we'll do that. Great. Let's I've got some in my bag. Why don't we all wear the T-shirt? <laughs> now, you mentioned earlier, so you started a business in a different country, and not only a different country, but one that was on the opposite side of the world to where you're based. You know, you didn't just start it in France, which is like, you know, an hour or so away on the aeroplane. You started it in Australia, which is 12,000 miles away. And you obviously had some major challenges. Like you said, you tried to get funds to actually, uh, you know, adapt their their policies, and they didn't. So you actually started a brand new fund. So I'm curious about what tips would you advise others who might be willing or might be, sorry, considering opening a business in a different country? Um, probably the, the biggest um, consideration is um, difference, that unless you are very, very different to everything else that's available in the country that you want to start in, there's a very, very high chance your business will fail. Simple as that. The reason yeah. for that is if I'd gone to Australia and decided to launch a another ethical fund, the only differentiator is that this a another ethical fund would have been run by some Englishman who isn't in Australia all the time. That's it. Yeah. That's my differentiator. Is that a reason not to use an Australian based um, uh, ethical fund and it's yeah. not or whatever the product is so if you're trying to if you want to be in that country because you want to be in that country but offer a me too product I would say don't waste your time and money because it, it's not that people are jingoistic it's just practical that um, not being there all the time or not being different enough people will go with what they're used to so you have to be extra different and delivering something that people don't have access to, and then all those other barriers of, um, you know, perhaps not being permanently resident, not being there all the time, having to deal some things remotely, um, people will put them aside because what they're buying is your difference. If things are the same, then all those little things that might slow things down initially or create a little complication, they become um, annoyances. And people just move their business elsewhere. And I yeah. can't see that that would be any different, whether it's a financial services business or a, you know, a, a vegan uh, catering business. If it isn't yeah. different, I mean, even, there's you know, vegan catering business. If you just, if an Australian wanted to go to um, the US and launch a vegan catering business, the assumption would be that there aren't any vegan catering businesses in the US already. Because if there are, they, they, they're there all the time. They've got their mates and their infrastructure. They can do things quickly that you can't do because you're not there. Exactly. But, yeah. but if there isn't somebody doing what you're doing, so looking at um, you know, the Australian financial services market, nobody had launched a fund. No one was even thinking about a superannuation fund in Australia that had animal welfare at its core. Um, that, was the, that was the only reason that I thought cruelty-free super might work. Got it. Got it. No, that's good advice. Very good advice. So on cruelty-free superfund, I'm curious because one of the issues that a lot of vegan product manufacturers particularly come up against is the need to price their finished products at a higher price um, due to costs of raw materials and possibly if they get any certification, such as like ethical certification, sometimes that can push the price up. Now, I know that cruelty-free supers funds are uh, a bit higher than traditional superannuation fees. So how do you deal with that and particularly sort of justifying that to potential customers? Um, <clears throat> I never try and justify, I try and explain. Because um, to justify something almost implies that it was wrong to start with. True, and you're then trying point, to sort yeah. of give excuses. <laughs> so I explain the reality of the position, which is if you're running an industry super fund um, in Australia that's been going for um, you know 15 years and you've got X billion under management, um, everything you buy, you can buy cheaply just because of economies of scale. If you're starting from scratch, once Cruelty Free Super launched, it launched with nothing in the fund. The first investment was $500. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> then, you know, you, we don't have the economies of scale. And then you, you talk about um, you know, certification. Well, we, we, we don't have certification as such, but we do have to pay an external 
organization to research all the companies that we might want to invest in to make sure they meet the stated criteria. There's no point having a piece of paper that says this is what cruelty free super stands for and then say, and we hope that we, we, we certainly intend to meet that criteria, but we've got no idea whether we do or not. We have to pay a large amount of money to a third party to check every single investment to say, yeah, there is no breach. You're okay to buy that stock. Um, so it, it comes at a premium. As the fund grows, the fees will reduce. That, that's back to the basic economics of economies of scale. Um, but it's, it's not something I'm, I'm particularly proud of or want to, to, ha- to be the case, but it is just a reality. Um, so we do have those extra research costs, economies of scale. Looking at the market in, in Australia, there's been so many boutique um, super funds launched in the last year or so, and all of them are priced roughly around the same as cruelty free. So the very, very large sort of monolithic superannuation funds, if it's price um, that, that's most important, join one of those big funds. They will deliver exactly what you want, good returns at a low price. But if that's your attitude, then factory farm meat is the best return on your eating budget. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. It's sort of a crude example. (laughs) No, it's good. And I think it's good, like you say, to explain that to people because when they understand that and they get that, like most people just wouldn't even think about that, that, you know, you've got to pay an external people to to research. I mean, I just remember on a much smaller scale when Tracy and I, my partner Tracy and I, first came to Australia and in order to get our permanent residency, we started up a a hair and beauty salon and we made it a vegan and as natural as possible. And I was like, I don't do hair or anything. So my, my, my part of my job was to spend all that time like researching the, the particular companies I had to ring France in the middle of the night and all this kind of thing and and you're right you know that people don't necessarily think about that so they would just think oh well why is it more expensive but when you actually explain that to them it's like oh okay oh fair enough then and then because they can then be really confident that their money like you say is going into a, a truly ethical fund so that's fantastic now let's talk, I want to talk to you a little bit about the word vegan now and and also your your clients because you've got the two different companies and obviously for cruelty free soup I imagine the majority of people who are going to join Cruelty Free Super are vegan uh, animal activists. What about in with ethical investors, your company in the UK? What percentage of your clients are vegan and how much or otherwise do you use the word vegan in your branding and marketing? Um, I don't use it at all, actually, um, because of the because of the subjectivity around ethics. The business is called Ethical Investors. Um, and the, the sort of the ethical hook for the businesses, if you wish to invest ethically, we'd like to think you'd use us to give you advice. And if you don't want to invest ethically, we will not deal with you. Um, what someone's definition of ethical is, um, it, as I say, is, is very subjective. Uh, where I, interestingly, where I do use the term vegan is mostly in front of non-vegans. And to say, I'm going to invest your money in a vegan um, investment fund because it's the best performing fund in this particular sector. Nice. <laughs> That's a nice strategy. So, I like that. So I say, <laughs> you may not be concerned about animal welfare issues, but actually this fund, which happens to be vegan and apply vegan criteria, um, is outperforming all the funds that are better aligned with your ethical values that might include meat and dairy and animal testing. Um, so I'm recommending this fund on performance. I thought you might find it interesting. Actually, it's far stricter than you are. Now, this, this is not me saying, therefore, you should be a vegan. It's saying your money is going to be vegan. So, because um, I think, I think most people, we ask people to complete a detailed ethical questionnaire and, and to express what they really are driven by is an area. So someone, you know, might work for, um, a charity, uh, that looks after, uh, children in developing countries. So where children are being exploited, but their drivers are going to be human rights, probably environment, social issues. Um, and they may have some sort of concerns about animal, you know, they'll eat meat or whatever, but they'll go and buy a free range, which is brilliant. And that's fine. Um, but when we say to them, tell us what really drives you, because that's where we'll focus your money to then be told, actually the fund you're in is vegan, I've never once in 28 years had somebody say to me, well, that's outrageous. I don't want to be associated with that lot. (laughs) They would say, that's cool, because although I expressed that animal welfare issues were not of high concern, it is nice to feel that I can have a really good investment return and be stricter with my money 
than I had originally intended. And everybody feels good about that. So, so say, paradoxically, I, I use the term vegan more in front of non-vegans, just to emphasize the point. But once you've got them talking to you, but you, you haven't got it emblazoned on, say, the Ethical Investors website, which could potentially turn people off, which is no, interesting. Is that I think right? it's, diff- well, it's different because we're providing a service more than a, a product. Quarter Free Super in Australia is a product. It, it stands mm. on its own. That is it. That's what you're buying. Whereas um, with Ethical Investors in the UK, you're you're asking somebody to provide you with holistic financial planning within your values. And so it's the client's values that are actually dictating how we deliver the advice. The difference for us is... But but you could describe yourself, you could say ethical investors and then have a tagline, you know, vegan financial planners, but you don't because you want to get people in the door and then you bring it up when they're actually chatting to you. Do you see what I mean? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's my my motivation, but we've got staff um, in in the business that aren't vegan, so therefore to claim that it's a vegan business. Got it, got it. Whereas Cruelty Free Super has been founded, you know, with some very core principles at heart, um, and it was my baby, so it had my principles. (laughs) I don't want that to sound sort of egotistical in a way, but I had a clean piece of paper and developed a product. Whereas a 28 year old business, um, delivering something that's only, you know, if it isn't, people won't invest ethically, we won't deal with them. Um, but within that framework, we've got lot, everybody that works in the business is passionate about ethical issues, but, but everybody has different views. Everybody knows what my views are. Mm. Um, and they're respected, but I'm not going to impose my views on anyone else. I just would find it difficult to work with someone who had no values at all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I love that strategy, and I love that you said, you know, the way you just just casually throw it in there that, you know, look, this is the best performing fund. It just happens to be vegan. I think that's fantastic. Um, so I wanted to talk to you as we're, we're getting close to sort of wrapping up now, because you're an expert, particularly in, you know, all things kind of finance. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the likely implications of Brexit on vegan business? businesses particularly on you know the economy and ethical investing any thoughts on that um ethical investing i can't see it making any difference at all um because whether it's in investing or ethical investing it's just basic stock picking um so fund managers are able to find what they consider to be the best investments of any particular time in a broader sense it's going to impact on the uk market um stock market um, but it'll be a, a, a negative, then a positive, and a negative, then a positive. It, it'll, it'll be a, a cyclical basis. So I think Brexit's probably the least uh, least impactful issue on running vegan funds or just a vegan lifestyle. Um, right. I don't, yeah. So I don't. I don't see that personally. I wish it never happened, but it's personal yeah. view. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, it's. It looks like it still may happen, so we have to make the best of it. I know that a lot of the vegan products buy here are, are, do come from Europe, so I'm just hoping there's a, a good trade deal and already slightly premium products don't, um, you know, increase in, in price. But if they do, yeah. then it won't stop. It won't stop me buying the products as long as I can get to them. Um, I'll just have to take it on the chin but if that happens it won't be because they're vegan products it'll be because all products imported might be more expensive so you know it's not that that I'm hoping the British government isn't going to single out um, any vegan products as those which um, they won't have a trade deal on and therefore who cares if they um, get more expensive? Yeah. I, I think it would be quite unilateral. If, if prices go up, it would be everything. Yeah, for sure. Now, we've seen lately quite a few large brands, um, such as meat and dairy companies, buying smaller ethical vegan brands and plant-based brands. And I think just this week it was announced, uh, you may have seen, that Japanese pharmaceutical company had bought Dyer, a plant-based cheese company, and it's really gone off on social media, and the vegan community is very divided on this. Um, some people see it as a positive move in order to grow a vegan product and really get it into the hands of more people. And others believe, well, it's unethical because, um, you know, purchases of the product may think maybe they might fund animal testing. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on this? Because we're seeing more and more of this kind of thing happening and it's a bit unprecedented. So I'm, I'm curious what, what you think about all of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a daily dilemma of um, trying to... <laughs> lead an ethical life nowadays um i'm going to be completely hypocritical on this one and i'm going to say 
in principle, my view is the more we mainstream the non-mainstream, the more likely it is to be mainstream. Um, maybe that's a bit of um, a Rumsfeldian way of, <laughs> of trying to say <laughs> that as long as the mass market feels that vegan f- product, vegan, especially vegan food, food products are for the vegans and they're not they're very nice and they're out there and you buy them at the end of, a, of an aisle that you never bother going down, um, then that's where they'll remain. And, and there will always be some people that say, but part of me being a vegan is being deliberately, you know, it's what I'm latching onto. It's being different. Um, okay, fine. But that's, is that really leading a vegan lifestyle or is that just being different? Um, so mainstreaming the products mainstreams the message. That's always been my view. Where I'm going to be hypocritical now is to say, um, that from, let's say cruelty free supers perspective when we look at the parent company it whilst it will be interesting to see that this company a has bought company b and company b as the vegan products that means oh that's interesting that looks good for cruelty free if there's any other aspect of that company's business that's involved in um, the use of animal products they would fail cruelty free supers policy so hands up this is me being (laughs) hypocritical there's the mainstreaming the message which i think is absolutely critical so i think from a personal perspective i would con- i would continue to buy that company's products to demonstrate to the parent company you know what there's more money to be made here so why don't you have more vegan products available and stop making the other ones or slow down making the other ones so that's me sort of voting with my purchasing power from yeah. an investment perspective i would not buy shares in the parent company got it and I understand it I'm, I was glad to get your perspective on that because I can literally see both sides of the argument and I, yes. I, I haven't sort of commented publicly because I wanted to sort of percolate a little bit because you're, you're right it's like it's so unprecedented that it literally is throwing up all these ethical challenges that we you know we've never really had to have as vegans before so it is a, a curious one so thanks for sharing your, your views on that and just related to that then the other thing that's coming out of this is the whole concept of you know some in the vegan community are critical of what they see as vegan capitalism um, and saying, look, look, that's actually not going to, uh, you know, help um, animal liberation. So what are your thoughts on that one? Um, very simple, really. I'm a capitalist. I just view myself as a social capitalist. I believe capitalism um, can be used um, for good and for change and everybody can be better under capitalism. Um, in, a, in a broader sense, um, the, the, the biggest damage and a and exploitation isn't done by capitalism, it's done by people. Mm. You can't, you can't label capitalism as guilty as anything. It's, it's the same thing as money. All oh, money's evil. No, people are evil. Money's <laughs> just a tool. Yeah? If you want to use money to go and buy, buy vegan products, you're dealing with something evil. Oh no, no, my money's ethical, you know, more ethical. No, it's not. It's just money. You are making the lifestyle choice. Someone uses their money to buy products they know abuse animals or become, you know, is, is paid to be an arms dealer and selling arms illegally to um, oppressive regimes. That's a lifestyle choice. It's got nothing to do with money. It's about their choice. And so capitalism is, is, a, is a mechanism. And I just think if people were more responsible in the way that capitalism operated, and that's right. down to individuals. If more and more people invested ethically in the capitalist system, we'd end up with an ethical capitalist system. Mm. Every time somebody says, I'm not joining that fund because I don't like the name or I don't like the logo, but I'm going to stay in my mainstream exploitation fund, they're saying, keep up the current system. But the same person will then go and say, well, capitalism's bad. No, you're bad. <laughs> not capitalism. Um, yeah. And also, to flip it around the other way, we don't have um, an alternative because the, 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 the most sort of logical alternative is communism, and I'm not aware of ever a communist vegan state. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I like the fact that you use that animals. term. Yeah, yeah. And same with socialists as well. I mean, I know, and I'm yes, not bagging all socialists, but I know that certainly a lot of people I know who are socialists, they, they really don't include animals in any way whatsoever. And one conversation I had with one socialist person who's actually a lovely activist like on human rights activist she's actually gorgeous and a lovely human being but I was fascinated when she said yeah we're still debating you know in the socialist group whether this was just about three four years ago we're still debating whether animals are sentient or not and my jaw just literally dropped I was like are you kidding me so I get what you're saying but I like 
kind of like your term social capitalist. That's an interesting one. And this whole concept of ethical capitalism, it's something I'm curious about. So I'm glad you've, you've touched on that. That's fantastic. And we could probably have a whole conversation on that, but uh, it's been great. So okay. let's just wrap up then, Lee, in terms of tell us what's your long-term vision then for, I mean, I know obviously ethical investors has been going since 1989 and cruelty-free super since 2009. What's your long-term vision both for yourself and your brand? Um, it's simply mainstreaming or more mainstreaming of what we do now on on the financial planning business I think there is far greater acceptance that investing responsibly um, is is a sound investment strategy so that that's that's far more into the mainstream it's not completely it's not mainstream yet but it's more into the mainstream than perhaps uh, the concept of cruelty free super um, and that's that's just indicated by the fact that if you look to all the ethical and responsible investment funds around the world there there are almost almost none in relative terms compared to the thousands of funds um, there are three that I'm aware of out of thousands that would have animal based strict animal based criteria so to me it's it's getting more acceptance of the fact that Animal issues are the same ethically as more of the human rights and environmental issues and also financially um, supporting intensive farming and everything that goes around with sort of a plant based lifestyle um, or the, or the anti sorry, plant based lifestyle um, is not a great long term bet. So in a way, um, I, I would like to see something that's happened akin to the fossil free movement you know people saying i don't want my money in oil and and um coal i would like more and more people to say i don't see the long-term benefit of intensive farming and if they come at that from a climate change perspective i don't care really yeah yeah absolutely and but, i believe but they should be coming at it yeah from, yeah from a climate change perspective you know if you come at it from the animal welfare perspective you're sort of expected to but i'd like to see more people in the green movement saying yeah. To help the climate, I'm not going to go on an environment, a climate change rally and then pop into a burger joint to have a celebration yeah. afterwards. <laughs> this exactly. is a vegan burger. Plant-based. Yeah. And, and I believe you're doing some work or you're doing some kind of investigations into ethical banking. Is there anything you'd like to share on that? Uh, yes, that work is continuing, but um, I'm hoping that this year we will see the first animal-based um, criteria adopted by a bank in terms of vetting their, their corporate lending because the big issue with banks is is not at the individual level who does and who doesn't um i mean your, your sort of worst individual enemy might bank at the, with the same bank as you but you don't class the bank as being unethical because the person you hate down the road <laughs> has yeah. the same bank but but the issue with banks is you put money into a bank um, and they'll lend it on. A lot of their lending is to companies. So you may actually be, it's almost like walking up to the, the gates of a factory farm and handing the farmer money and say, please, keep going. Um, and that's what I want to focus more attention on. I'm hoping to say that this year we'll see the first animal-based criteria um, within an Australian bank to say... With um, an Australian one, is this? With an oh, Australian okay. bank, yeah. Oh, um, okay, right. Where... Uh, the bank will say, if your if your business is involved in these areas, we're not able to finance you. Um, very sorry, but there are other banks that can help you. And right. and that is basically acknowledging the fact that the money they're lending comes from customers, and um, a large number of customers will, will want to say, um, here's my money, um, but please don't lend it to those areas. And just one thing, one little point on that sort of subject I'd, I'd like to make is that um, for quite some time, certainly post 2007, 2008, um, a lot of people have used that term, those bankers, and in a sort of derogatory yes. sense, those bankers, how could they do that? <laughs> um, I, I just throw out one simple question, which is to everybody that's ever opened a bank account, have you ever gone into the, the bank with a list of areas that you don't want the bank to lend your money to? Because if you've never done that, the banks have only ever done what you've asked them to, which is, here's my money, look after it, and I don't care what you do with it. That's so right. therefore, to, now I'm not supporting banks, but to criticise the banks for doing something you didn't tell them you didn't want them to do. It's a bit hypocritical. Slightly unfair. Yeah, so I want yeah. more people to understand yeah. what their money does. This is my big, forget 
cruelty-free super anything else like that, the big thing that will change society is for more people to say, I understand what my money does and I don't like it. I want something that meets my value. So here's my money bank. Here's my money superannuation company. And these are the conditions that I'm giving that to you on. You will not put my money in these businesses. If you can't accept that, I'll find someone else to give it to. So the, the change has to come from individuals. I can talk about changing financial institutions. They will only change when the individuals start walking into a branch of their bank and saying, here's a list of all the areas I don't want you to lend my money to. If you can't do that, I'll find someone else. Brilliant. Well, that's great. And I hope you'll keep us up to date um, if that happens or when that happens, I should say, with oh, yes. the we'll Australian make a big Bank. Yep. And uh, yeah, we'll do a little a news story on it in a, an upcoming episode. So it's been lovely speaking with you, Lee. I think the work you're doing is amazing and it really gets people thinking, you know, particularly vegans and you know, people who consider themselves ethical, um, including business owners, about, you know, where their super or their pension funds and their banking goes. I think that's really given people uh, pause for thought. You've shared some great information it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much for coming on the show today that's a pleasure really enjoyed it thanks Katrina so that was Lee Coates from Ethical Investors and Cruelty Free Super you can find out more at ethicalinvestors.co.uk and cruelty-free-super.com.au. and those links are on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 83 Now for our vegan business news roundup. Pioneering vegan fashion brand Vought Couture has raised $65,000 in equity crowdfunding in just a few weeks since June. That's 2017 if you're listening in the future, reports Veg News. The New York-based fashion label, spearheaded by former model-turned-entrepreneur Leanne Maley-Hilgart, took advantage of new laws in the US that allow consumers to invest in companies in exchange for convertible notes that turn into a stock option after two years. It's a different model to traditional investing, which is typically done by high-wealth individuals or venture capitalist firms, and also to regular crowdfunding, where people donate in return for a physical or electronic reward. Maylie Hilgart, who makes high-tech winter coats and other fashion wear without any animal materials, said, If we have this type of support, we can reach much bigger markets of people who typically buy Canada goose or wool coats through paid marketing campaigns and more textile development. I love this. Vought was the first vegan fashion brand to take New York Fashion Week by storm a few years ago, and it's great to see it go from strength to strength. I'm looking forward to visiting the Vought store in Manhattan in October this year, and I've got my eye on a new winter coat. So equity crowdfunding is a relatively new model that businesses can take advantage of, so it may be worth checking out the options available in your country. While Vought pioneered vegan fashion, the trend is catching on across the globe. Australian fashion brand Holster recently got its entire footwear range certified vegan, reports the Sunshine Coast Daily. The company, which is based in Noosa in the state of Queensland, gained the certification from the Vegan Society in the UK, which has been registering products with its vegan trademark since 1990, with more than 24,000 products from 53 countries now carrying the logo. Holster co-founder Ben Nothling said he believes the certification, which is the first for an Australian footwear brand, will allow the company to appeal to a whole new market of animal-aware consumers. It's great to see companies recognising the importance of vegan certification, particularly with products outside the food space. It gives ethical consumers peace of mind, so if you've got a product-based business, it may be worth looking into. Finally, a bakery in Texas has taken out the top gong at a prestigious food competition, reports Plant-Based News. Skull and Cake Bones in Austin won the grand prize of $25,000 at this year's Quest for the Texas Best competition, hosted by supermarket chain HEB Grocery Company, which has 380 outlets across Texas and Mexico. 
The bakery, which has been going for four years, took the number one spot out of 565 entrants from 200 Texas towns with its matcha marmalade trifle, a chocolate cake featuring cocoa sponge sandwiched with coffee buttercream frosting and topped with a chocolate pudding. Oh my gosh, that's making my mouth water. Co-owner Yaus Berenji said the company would use the prize winnings to pay off their new freezer, take their staff out for a night on the town and put some funds aside for emergencies. And as an added bonus, the winning creation will be available from HEB's supermarket locations. How fabulous is this? I love that a vegan business beat out all the others to win the top prize. It really helps to demystify vegan food. And I've said before on this podcast, it's well worth entering competitions as it can help to raise the profile of your brand. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more resources, including details of my media and PR consultations, copywriting, editing and proofreading services to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business, and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now. 